welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hello. Uh, today I will talk to Valerie Tender. Valerie is a prostitution survivor, artist, and activist. She lives in Montreal, Quebec, with her lovely cats. How many cats do you have, uh, Valerie? I have four cats. That's the city's maximum per apartment. Again, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what their names? One, Gregor, and. Uh... I have Gregory, I have Pepe, Lily, and Richard. Oh, wonderful. So, <laughs> first of all, I would love to hear a little bit about you, um, how you got into the sex trade, what types of sex trade you were involved, how you managed to get out of there, what does your life look today? Mm-hmm. So, I entered the sex industry when I was, uh, I did my first client at 16 years old. Uh, then I was in prostitution full time during my whole year of 17 year old and I quit just before I turned 18. After that, I remained in strip clubs, which were legal, and I danced until I was uh, 23 years old. So in total, it's six years in the sex industry and uh, prostitution. I did anything from the street to uh, high class to all the different niche I have experienced which now, uh, you know, really, uh, I can say uh, is why I um, I think it's really just gradients of sordid, because honestly, whether you're, you're doing clients in, in satin sheets or in a car, at the end of the day, there's still unwanted penetration in your body. So during the time that I was in the industry, I didn't have access to all of this reasoning. It came after. I exited the industry at 23. I had never had a job, uh, never had a resume or a job interview or anything. So I felt really outside of society. I had community agencies that offered me free counseling and they also helped me to finish high school. After I finished high school at 23 years old, I went straight to university because that community agency had made an arrangement with a university in Montreal to allow uh, adult mature students to attend. And so I got a bursary. I decided to study ecology. So I went straight into science. And usually there's college that prepares you for university here in Quebec. And I, I guess like I hit I hit like hardcore like animal biology, plant biology. Meanwhile, I had not had like I was not computer literate. I had not learned how to turn in a paper with the proper cover page and bibliography and all these things that you learn in college. 
I skipped, I went straight to university. So my first semester was really a, a big learning curve, but I pulled through and, uh, you know, I, I needed to prove myself that I was smart because I had used the the physical and the charm and this stupid game for so long that I really had to prove myself my own worth and what I was capable. Uh, so your other questions from that series were also like how I got out. So really how I got out is uh, for prostitution. Uh, I mean by that, like literally sexual acts like penetration and blowjobs. I stopped that at 17 because at the time it was still illegal. Uh, it was not legal. So we were criminalized in Canada. This is back in 1998, basically. Uh, so we were criminalized. So I had just gotten busted by the police as a minor. And I knew that if I continued, then uh, next time I was getting busted, I would have a criminal record. And I, I didn't want prostitution to be something that follows me forever. Uh, so you know, that's also there was a time when um, there was a specific event where uh, someone in my real life who did not know that I was in the sex industry because I compartmentalized my lives very much. So someone that did not know that I did that on the side uh, and who knew me by my real name and everything offered me sex for money. And that was really earth shattering for me. I, I was insulted. I was offended. I, I couldn't believe he was asking me that. And we had established some sort of trust and friendship where it was just a giant, like, what the fuck to be asked that. And so it it did kind of a, a, a dissociative effect. I felt like I suddenly floated over my body, which exactly happened when I got busted by the police too. I felt like I exited my body and was floating above looking at this scene and realizing like, okay, like this is it. Like you are realizing that you cannot put it into words yet, but clearly you're doing something that harms you and you're understanding that this is a dangerous life. Like the danger of it was getting at me more and more. Also during my time in the strip clubs, I experienced being in a shootout. There was gang tensions, mafia tensions. I saw drug deal exchanges. I saw guns and all these things that make you realize like, wow, how did I become so numb that I'm not realizing the danger I put myself in every night pretty much? So that's, um, I got out by steps. So I stopped prostitution, but I kept being a stripper for many years after because I knew nothing else. Those were the codes I was used to navigating. Uh, those, that was the reality I felt, even though it was hell, I felt comfortable in because I understood it. I understood the dynamic, how it works. I felt kind of on top of my game. And um, because I didn't do drugs all the time, I was in the industry, I was sober. It gave me a feeling that I was more in control and I feared drugs. I realized that the girls who are dependent on drugs are also uh, often dependent on the industry and have pimps and drug dealers that manipulate them. So me, I had a very, very dissociated prostitution. I would just punch out of my life, go into that, come back home, have a crazy shower ritual where I remove all the germs and I visualize all this dirty energy is leaving me with going down the drain with the water. So I was very, very dissociated. And as soon as I would step out of the shower, be completely clean, then I would feel like, okay, I'm back to me now. But there's a comes a time where all these rituals you have don't work anymore. And at some point it, it catches up with you. For me, I would say like the last two years that I was in strip club, I knew I had to get out. I just really had so much fear, so much feeling of inferiority. On one end, I knew I was smart and capable, 
but like it was like a vague theory and and if i'm capable within the context i'm in so yeah sure clients at the strip club paid me to talk and they think i'm smart okay but can you take that out and would that still work in the real world with the expectation of the real world and having bosses and and working in teams and would they judge me if they find out so i had many years of just juggling shame and and lack of confidence and over time now if i can ask you do you think now it was an irrational fear because i speak to many many women many fellow survivors and uh, many people many women say uh, why did they stay in the sex trade because they they felt uh, incapable maybe mm-hmm. some felt very very low self efficacy but it wasn't rational it was something uh, com- entirely psychological so do you think yeah. your fear was rational or you uh, probably you could uh, you, you could find another job but it is like some psychological no i, I did not think head. i could find a job I, I didn't yeah. because I had nothing on my resume and I didn't even have the confidence to shake a boss's hands uh, and pass an interview. Like everything was absolutely scary to me. It's so still, still psychological. Yeah, but when you also the the society is very hard. Like so, here's an example. First time I went to welfare office to get government help so I could escape prostitution and have an income. I I was honest. I the lady asked me because I had like again, I've never done income tax. I'm completely out of society. I only have Medicare and that's it. Everything else I'm out of the loop. So I go to the government agency. I've never done income tax. I'm I'm not collecting uh the, the whatever I should be getting as well because I'm kind of out of the system. And then I tell her I, well I have she asked me how have you been supporting yourself the last few years. I said I was in the sex industry and I I'm now being followed by a community agency I get counseling and I really need to get out because this is alienating to me I can't take it anymore the clients for me it's violence so I I explained her that and she literally told me uh well what what tells me that you're not just going to keep continuing doing clients on the side if we give you welfare so women experience such hardship when they try to get out and get help and if they have big holes on their resume and they lack the confidence to justify them so yes it is psychological but it's also like you have been out of the loop for years and if for me because i started as a minor i didn't have like summer jobs or anything that makes you slowly ready to go to work so i had zero experience of work plus i perceive bosses as clients they're men with power and i feared that the sex industry even though i was getting out of it would slip like slip into my normal life by having unwanted requests and what if they find out so there're irrational fear but there also if you have not proven yourself that you have other value that you can do something else and 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 be confident then you just really don't know how so it becomes an actual problem even if it's locked in your mind it is a real problem you you basically don't know how to carry yourself in society because you start from the premise that what if people knew where i come from and so i carried that shame for years there came a point where eventually i refused that shame and i realized that the shame has to switch side it needs to be put on the men who buy us the men who contrive us with money to do these things. Uh we are going to talk about them a little bit later. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I I wanted yeah, I wanted to to mention all this uh uh this uh, You also asked me how my life was today. So if yeah. I summarize 
I've been out of prostitution for 20 years. So I have entirely new group of friends and, and new interests. Like the fabric of my life today has very little to do with where I come from, but it, ha it does in what I do with my time. So I, I use my time to be a militant, to be out there trying to explain this, to do the pedagogy of abolitionism and give testimonies in schools as much as I can. And I, I get called into the media. There are few survivors who will go into the media with the, their full identity, their face and their name. So I do get a bunch of requests and I'm, I'm always glad to, well, again, you need to filter who you give interviews to because most of the time, now I'm at a point, to be honest, I've done so many interviews that I feel like I am giving them something that they need. So I put my conditions on front. I tell them, if you're going to switch the words that I use to describe myself, when I describe myself as a survivor of prostitution, if you change that for sex work, we're not doing this interview and it's not happening. I'm now really adamant that they need to respect the, what uh, I'm this bringing. This is important to you, right? Because, yeah, uh, they do that I, all I the time. I don't like uh, the sex worker term used. And why do one? Why do you think this uh, term is so detrimental that uh, you condition your interviews on not, not using this? So why it is so important to? Yeah, they always use it as a headline. So now I don't even do interview unless they agree to use the words I'm giving them and to not change the words. And and I explain them why this is so important. I explain to the media, you have the power to shape people's thoughts and the ideas that they have access to. So when you tell them this is sex work, you're saying that this is sex. When I would debate that it is not because sex is something that happens between two people out of pleasure, out of lust and desire. This is not sex. And furthermore, this is not work. I've gone through doing the extensive exercise of trying to see how you can apply the the norms of the working code. I don't know how to translate like les normes du travail in French. Like so the the work code, I guess, with all the rules that need to be followed for security. And maybe, and how, maybe labor convention. Labor law, exactly. Sorry I'm French. So um I know I went through the exercise of trying to see how labor law could fit over the sex industry. And other survivors have done that exercise as well and researchers. And it cannot fit because if you accept that in every other profession, you need to be physically protected, not be in contact with body fluid. In any other employment, the actions of sex industry would be considered sexual harassment. So just an example, if you're working in a strip club or a massage parlor, your job is to be sexually available, is to be there, to be on display, to make a lineup so that the men choose you. This is your job. In any other profession, this would be considered sexual harassment. So you're you're in, in the uh, dressing room, uh, your, your stomach hurts, you feel terrible. Uh, the manager comes in and tells you to go put your ass on the floor. How is that not sexual harassment? You know, but because it is in people's mind, it's, it's structured as work and it's in a legitimate place. So I've come to the conclusion that the problem is at the municipal level because the cities keep on granting permits to those business and they make them legitimate. So even though in Canada we do have the correct law, we have the abolitionist model, it's not being enforced very well yet. And the knowledge of this approach has not yet gotten to all the different uh, just, uh, one moment. levels. I, have, uh, I wanted to, yeah, to ask about it a little bit later, uh, about the this Nordic model implementation in, uh, in Quebec. So uh, yeah. just, let me, uh, just let me reach there. 
but I wanted to, to ask you before that, uh, uh, was the, sometimes the strip clubs, the clubs are referred to as uh, uh, less harmful. So, because they, they're just dancing, it is not sex trade. You're not, you, you're not necessarily penetrated. Uh, you, you're just dancing in, in, a, in a sexually attractive way. So it is not the same as the sex trade. Uh, do you agree with that? Well, so first off, in Montreal, it is no longer that. It has not been that for 20 years because all the strip clubs have private booths where the men can touch you. So the way it is, the, the woman has to keep a G-string on and the man gets to touch her tits and ass. So how is that not gradients of prostitution? And this I would even argue... Prostitution, but can you refuse to, to uh, offer this service? Well, so they're supposed to just do what I guess is called a lap dance, where she rubs herself on him and he gets to touch her breast and her ass. He's not supposed to touch her genital and they're not supposed to do sexual acts. But from the moment they put walls with the, either a curtain or a door, you know that more than just dancing is happening behind that. So now it is known throughout town. You can get a blowjob or a hand job in any strip club. Some strip club are even more comfortable. They'll put a, even a real door with a lock. So you go into a small booth and you get sexual service anywhere in Montreal. And and these places but, uh, have just, uh, limits. I, yeah, I understand, but I just want to, to ask for, for people who try, try to deny it maybe. Is there any way to earn money in a strip club just for dancing on the stage? No, absolutely not. Never has been. You've, you've, I've never gotten paid. You don't have a salary. The stage you do for free. It's like your publicity that you do to get the guys to want you to take you to the cabin. So before they got the, the cabin or the booth, however you want to call it, it used to be table dance. So the girl would go on a little round box. And you would be in front of the guy and get fully naked and he was not allowed to touch you whatsoever. But all of this started changing between 2001, 2003. By 2003, it was contact pretty much everywhere. So now it is contact everywhere. That's just a fact. So it, it, was, uh, it, it was the same in Israel, but uh, just, just mm. uh, wanted to clarify it. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, uh, today you see prostitution as violence against women. Uh, have you always seen it like that or have you had another perception in the past about mm -hmm. prostitution, like when you have been to the sex trade? Yeah, so absolutely. I, I didn't have access to those ideas when I was in the industry. In fact, most of us didn't have access to those ideas about 10, 15 years ago. The abolitionist model is kind of recent in people's mind. We used to think it was all or nothing. It was black and white. It's either you, you're very puritanical and you abolish all of it and everything is criminal and you don't want to see it and you, you, you severely punish the people, all the parties involved in it. So the woman, the man, the pimp, everyone is like evil. Whereas the other alternative is like, oh, let's legalize everything. Let's let's make it a framework. It's going to be amazing. Let's not ask ourselves what these women's days look like, obviously. Who cares? So the abolition model, abolitionist model that comes in and proposes a new way that says women, we're going to consider them not criminal anymore because there are conditions in their life that brought them there. We see that it is a current violence on their body to live that. We know that the rate of PTSD when they get out is terrible. So we started to view women as victims, which is a correct, the correct lens, I believe. But then we turn around and we said, what's the reason for all this industry? Well, there are men who put women to be available for other men, and there are buyers 
So then when we shifted the blame and we realized that what commanded this industry is not uh, poor, over-sexualized women who are slutty, but men who coerce and pay us, then you start to see clearly. So, I mean, this is just the only approach that will, the intention is to wean the industry out. And that's the, the only correct way to go about it, is to see there are women who are currently in prostitution that are not ready to get out, that are not able to get out. And I totally understand. Had I been forced to get out when I wasn't ready, I would have experienced it as violence. But then at some point, you, you have to stop thinking that this is inevitable, that men need this, that, that we need to make it so men have places where they go and do that so that what they don't hurt good women. So there's like... It's a classist view of women. There's the kind of woman you empty yourself in and have no responsibility over. And there's the kind of woman who's your wife and who you lie to and cheat on. Like, what's the, what's the option for women in this patriarchal world where we're being renegated to mother or whore? Think about it. And when women try to have a, a position of autonomy, they get on the workforce, they struggle to get good jobs, they get paid less than males, they get discriminated if they have children. Like, Everywhere, it's like there's no escaping this patriarchy. So, um, um, let, let, let me see if I understood you properly. You have been able to, to frame your own perception um, under the influence of the Nordic model, which is like the Nordic model gave you words to, to express your thought more yes. properly? Yes, definitely. Because those ideas were not around. The, the pro-sex industry lobby is very strong in Montreal. A bit less now, but there was a time for about 10 years where they were the only one called in to speak in the media. And all they talked about was the safety of sex workers and how sex workers should be allowed to self-organize and have these co-ops. And it's amazing. Let's offer plenty of opportunity for men to come and empty themselves. What a beautiful world. So this was the only voices out there. Survivors who started to say, wait a minute. Like, this is not a job like any other. The consequences for women, uh, personally, but also as a society, because it makes all women possibly uh, um, prostitutable. So this this lens only came later. Like, the Nordic model passed here, I believe, in 2014. And, um, you know, honestly, before that, I didn't have access to those ideas. And I, I became strongly interested in, in feminism only about five years ago, so in 2015. So when the so law passed, when, uh, I, I, I didn't really understand how good or powerful that law was. I wasn't against it, but I didn't really so understand. In, 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 in 2014, when uh, the sex purchase ban, ban came into force in Canada, you didn't mm -hmm. support it yet? I, I didn't have a position, because I, I started from having defended the right to be like a free prostitute, a great uh, autonomous self -work, self sex worker back in the days. Then I had been out of prostitution for a long time. I was feeling consequences in my body. So I was definitely not ready to say it's a job like any other or that it should be encouraged. I already knew in my body that I did not wish this for any other woman. But you, you, you didn't have a clear position on the sex purchase ban. I you did not know these ideas. Yeah, I didn't know those ideas. I just thought it's either you criminalize all of it or you legalize and, and you regiment it in a way that is less harmful. But I didn't understand that there was a middle position where the woman could be decriminalized and the men could be held accountable. 
I didn't have access uh, to those ideas. I understand what you say because in yeah. 1999, when uh, the sex purchase ban was was uh, enforced in Sweden, I told the oh, Swedes are crazy. I don't understand the, this idea. Either you you forbid it or you allow it. What does it mean to uh, to criminalize panther? Anyway, yeah. uh, I, <laughs> I'm not proud of this now. No, but it's because we come from a place, our experience tells us that unless they beat rape and really harm us, that they're okay. Like we think a client who doesn't beat us is an okay client. Like that's a terrible place to start from. We're not at the point where we can think that the fact that he puts his empathy in a box doesn't apply it to us and the, the prostitute that is in front of them. We're not there yet. We're not there to understand, like, he dehumanizes me when he buys me, you know? Yeah, I understand. But, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> I want to go back to some, something you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the focus on panthers. Because mm -hmm. in Israel, before the sex purchase ban was enforced, we had the um, uh, prohibition uh, of brothel owners or uh, all kinds of pimps. So the question is, uh, maybe uh, was it maybe it is enough to target the the pimps, or maybe it, it it would be possible to educate women to target pimps. So why should we focus on panthers? Why should we criminalize panthers when uh, maybe we can tackle it in different ways? Yeah, well, I think the fact that they're not held accountable whatsoever is problematic because the women are very visible. The pimps are around the women, so. It, I guess the police can more easily make a connection. Whereas the clients, they just come and go. They're not held accountable. Oh, she may look young, but I don't know her age. Like there's, they're never responsible of anything and they come and go. I, I saw a statistic that there is 10 clients for one prostitute proportion wise. So who, who are these many, many men, you know, like they just get to do whatever they want. They're not held accountable. I checked with the local police here. The I live in downtown Montreal, so I went to my police station and I tried to see what they understood of the law. And literally, like the the patrolling agent who are on the street, they don't understand the law. They they think like it it's only a, you know they'll only be interested in minors that are pimped basically, but they still don't understand that clients are problematic because the even education. Nowadays, even I'm nowadays sorry. Oh, yeah. This, this was last year. Absolutely. Because the training was only offered to the investigators or to the special brigade that takes care of prostitution. But this little street patroller police officer, he, is, he does not comprehend the Nordic model. They were not trained at that level. I know for a fact they were not. I have I have worked with police officers yeah, giving but, training. But, but my, my question, I understand that it is underimplemented, but I, I asked a theory, a question in theory, in theory. Could we target only pimps and uh, try to solve the prostitution problem no. by targeting pimps? No, not? absolutely not. Because Why? the pimp, I don't want to start having a pity and a over empathy for pimps at all, but they also <laughs> come from shitty lives. So people are trying to survive and some do it in a predatorial way. Actually, if you notice, most time when men are in criminal life, they harm others. Whereas when women are in a criminal life, they let harm happen to themselves. So that's a pattern that is based on our, our sex. That's just the way things are. So 
if men are structuring other women's prostitution, it starts from a place where they've had a shitty education. They've probably been in social services as children. I mean, I'm not making excuse for them, but I'm saying all of this is a reaction to poverty, whereas the client is the only one who has the power in that transaction. He comes in, he has the money, he pays for your pacification, basically. He pays for you to have great customer service with him, to be like pleasant and smiling and fun and not criticize anything. He can touch you however he wants, you know, and he can touch you how his wife would never let let herself being touched. So the, the real guilty is whoever commands the demand. And the pimps can only make money and structure that because there is a demand. If there was not a market for heroin sale, Pimps would not, uh, not pimps, I mean, drug dealers would not try to sell heroin. Now, people who used to be drug dealers prefer to deal in women because we can be sold an infinite amount of time. And we also don't come with a heavy tax uh, when it comes to sentencing. Like pimps get barely, uh, you know, their sentences is nothing compared to drug dealing. So a lot of the people who became pimps now used to be drug dealers. They just saw that this is a good business opportunity. They're used to being tough and predatorial. So they're just managing their game. This is the game has changed. And now they can put themselves up online by themselves. They can create this little business where they put women up on websites and they sell them and they collect the money, organize the transportation. So these these guys think they're like self-made, like this this is just pathetic. But they can only create that, this system of selling us, because there's a demand. Because men are Googling that they want to fuck a girl. Men are Googling, I want anal. I want a black girl. Uh, I want a small Asian who looks like a child. Like men are Googling that shit. That's why they end up on these uh, pimp websites where they sell women. So... Okay, this is uh, this is a very interesting point of view, and uh, thank you very much. You explained this uh, perfectly. So I realized in the well, while discussing the previous question that you are not happy with the level of law enforcement. Uh, what would you like to see in your city in in Quebec in general and Canada in general and the. Uh, what is happening now and how would you like to see the enforcement? Right. So there are many things. We have the correct law at the federal level, but it has not been implemented equally by all the different provinces. And the way Canada works, you have all these different independent provinces. And then it trickles back down to the municipal level. And I've, I've been seeing that for me, the biggest uh, problem with implementing and really enforcing the Nordic, Nordic model is that there has yet to be sufficient training of police officers, social workers, doctors, nurses. There's not enough training yet to explain that our lens has changed. Now we don't view prostituted women as criminal. We view them as victim of their lives, of circumstances, of patterns they're stuck in, of drug addiction. So the fact that the lens has changed needs to be really explained to all the different agents at every level of society. The other problem, and I've, I've been trying to see because in Montreal, we have all these strip clubs. They have licenses. They, they are legitimate businesses and they get to renew their license every year. So I went to city council and I confronted our mayoress and I asked her, Okay, so if there is a federal law that say that it is illegal to structure the resale of human beings, how comes year after year these businesses get to renew their permits? 
And she basically told me there is an inadequation between the federal and the municipal laws. At the municipal law, we have a zoning called erotic zoning. And these businesses have had this license forever. So basically, the city doesn't have the power or the willingness, that's another topic, to remove that zoning. So basically, with the Nordic model, the erotic zoning should not exist whatsoever at the municipal or, level. Uh, but, just, uh, but, just a question, in what province in Canada is the level of enforcement is sufficient, in, in your opinion? I would say Manitoba. Uh, yeah, I've seen that they have John schools, uh, they have programs for women, for children, they have programs that take into account the particularly of uh, Aboriginal people because they are also very disconnected from their roots. They have uh, in, um, generational trauma that is compounded to their, their struggles. So to reconnect them with their community and to respect their pace. So I, I know that Man Manitoba has, uh, has pushed and done really great things. Uh, and also what I've known about Manitoba is that the community agencies there uh, namely the one, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of her agency, but where Diane uh, Redsky works. She's a Canadian militant uh, Aboriginal who does amazing work. And they have pushed really hard for the media and the police to change their vocabulary. So in Manitoba, the media has been trained to no longer use sex work, but they went even further. They don't even use prostitution. They've made it so that everyone refers to every form of sex industry as sexual exploitation. So they've been even more courageous here in Quebec. I'm trying every time a journalist uh, change the word or because all of us, like all of us survivor, we see the journalists call us sex worker and so on. And then we email them back and, and we make, a, you know, like a coming out in the media, denouncing this practice of changing the words we use and of always talking about sex work. But they, they really went further than that in Manitoba. One of the provinces I would say where it's, the fight is going to be the hardest is Vancouver. Uh, the Vancouver area of uh, British Columbia is has a history of being very proud of being, um, you know, instigators of harm reduction. And they're very proud of this status as being progressive. So for them, I mean, the police literally said that they will not enforce it. They will not arrest clients. This is the Vancouver police. Vancouver police refers to it as sex work, sex workers and all their paper literature. I mean, this for me, conceptually, if we don't change people's minds and the, the vocabulary they, they use, it's a big step and it needs to be do, done throughout Canada. The same way that uh, conjugal rape did not exist as a notion a few decades ago, it was expected for a woman to not say no to her man when he wants sex. So the idea of conjugal rape is new in our mind. Well, same goes with abolitionism to understand this is that. Vancouver. Yeah, so Vancouver is the, the one, in my opinion, that has most work to do because yeah, they are very know, I just, high. Uh, they just had the host here in, in February, visited here uh, uh, Hila Kerner from uh, Vancouver, I believe. And uh, with her, an activist, uh, her name was Alice, activist uh, from, uh, also from Vancouver. And uh, she is a co-founder of uh, Organization of Asian Women Against Prostitution. Yeah, I know and them. she told me that the problem, yeah, you know them? So she told me that uh, when an Asian woman uh, just walking outside in Vancouver on the street, she, is, or she, she get, gets offers of money for sex. Yeah, a, for sure. Just a, so, any, any, any woman. 
Any Asian so, woman is a subject for a... Yeah, especially in Vancouver. And here in Montreal, I would say the ethnic communities that are most represented would be uh, Asian women, the women from 80. So a lot of black women and a lot of Aboriginal women. Uh, a bit less Asian because we're so not as close. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and well, basically any woman who's poor <laughs> is targeted, poor or vulnerable or at risk of, of being uh, under, uh, you know. But uh, yeah. so, so just to summarize what you said, so you have a, a very good implementation of the Nordic model in Manitoba. So you just could um, uh, adopt uh, their strategies, learn from them and adopt it in any other state, including Quebec. Yeah, well, we're trying. So uh, Survivor at our level, we're trying to change the way the media talks about us. We're making sure that we get booked on TV and in radio to uh, counterbalance the positive sex work message. Uh, and then there are community agencies that try to do a political representation. And But I'm, I'm honestly not feeling that at the municipal level for the city of Montreal, that there is a willingness to address sexual exploitation. Uh, of adult women, because of course everyone wants to save children everywhere. But when it comes to women in businesses that have permits, who are adult, who are, you know, children is free willing agents. One day before 18 years old, and adult is yeah. 18 years old and plus one day. Yeah, as I always say, nobody gets their hooker's diploma at 18, you know? Like <laughs> almost all of us entered as minors. So what's the difference between minus one minute and you know, it's, it's appalling. Like my, my whole childhood prepared me for this. Am I going to be blamed for that my entire life? Am I going to suffer the, the consequence of having been what bought? Do you mean? What do you well, mean by your childhood, childhood well, that prepared you for this? I mean, we all have predisposing factor. In my case, I had a father who was uh, addicted to pornography and masturbation and who had worked in the sex industry. So I think he enjoyed what very much... He was a doorman in strip clubs, and I believe that he enjoyed living vicariously through me. He liked that life. He liked to be my driver. He drove me to work for many years. Even when I was a prostitute, he would drive me to brothels. And he, he, would he didn't try in. to stop you? Not at all. Au contraire. Like when I tried to exit six years after, and I, I will remember forever, this is the breaking point for me. And I mean, this is a big thing. We're in the parking lot of a strip joint where I'm working. And he drops me off for work. And that's when I decided to tell him, I said, you know, dad, I just got a bursary to go to university and I, I can't deal with it. The fact that what is expected of me uh, during the daytime at school versus what I have to do at night, I just I can't handle it. I can't have the guys anymore. Like all of this, I can't take it. And all he did was say, well, well you, you can't stop dancing like how are you going to pay rent and then and then as I, I was exiting he kept on bringing coming back with offers every few months when I would be low on cash well you could go work at that place or my friend has a sexy waitress restaurant you could go there like so I mean what father wants this for their child so not only does he not acknowledge my intelligence and my ability but he literally does not want better for me so these pornophile men to be honest I I'm fucking done. Like, I, I can't deal with that. This is appalling. This is what porn does to people. You know? And your so, mother? Uh, my mom, we're not very much speaking at the moment. Uh, 
we're not in a fight. It's just that I don't feel very supported by my family for all my activism. And I've had many really good uh, moments in the year where I did great things. I was on TV. I got to speak at Parliament Hill. And I did all these events where I was expecting my family to be proud, to share it, to like it, you know. And, and zero, zip, nada. No, they're like ashamed of it because, and this was explained to me, uh, one of my aunt was walking in the shopping mall and someone came up to uh, her and said, I saw her on TV. Nah, nah, nah. And then they, they asked her, why didn't you do anything to help her? And again, like, I don't even say that to her. I don't even think anyone could have helped me. I was nine hours away from my hometown by myself with my, my pornophile father. So none of my family is to blame for what happens to me. I don't blame them, but I guess they might be blaming themselves. So, maybe, maybe they blame themselves. Yeah. So because I was insulted that I keep on receiving these emails from strangers congratulating me for taking a stand, for speaking on behalf of women. I have all these young women who, who email me that I'm an inspiration, that I'm helping them understand, maybe not fall back into something. And on the other end, I have zero support from my family. So this breaks my heart and my strategy is to just I remove them all from my social media and I'm just like, if, if you're not going to support publicly what I do, I'm sorry, I'm not dealing with this. So that's what okay. happened. So I, I love them. I care about them. But at the moment, I'm not speaking because being a militant is my whole life. And if you're not going to be proud of that and support that, I don't need you in my life. I'm sorry. I understand. What you're okay. And I'll, I'll tell you, the survivors who are doing best while being an active militant are the one who have a really good supportive family so if you don't have that it is a struggle because when i have successes it hits me i'm like okay but they're not there they're not appreciating this success with me so yeah it's hard understand so but so uh thank you for sharing this and uh how, how are you today i'm uh, good i'm good are you okay? Were you able to get rid of uh, the consequences of uh, your uh, past in the sex trade? You men mentioned the germophobia and the yeah. other uh, emotional problems. I'm doing better than I ever was, for sure. It, it's a process. So there are times where I get discouraged. For example, finding employment is difficult uh, still to this day. Because now, instead of being because I'm ashamed of having been a prostitute, it's now it's because I'm so known as an abolitionist militant that most of the community agencies are managed according to harm reduction and are usually pro-sex work. So that blocks me from being employed in agencies that actually help prostituted women that's that's one of the struggle I the reduction focus yeah but that's all they do they don't have this lens that being prostituted is not an optimal so if you don't start from the premise like okay so i have asked i, I just gotta tell you this whenever i go to uh, conferences or meetings where there's a lot of people who do outreach work with prostituted women i always ask them when you're with the women, do you ask them if they would like to get out? Do you ask them if they would like to do something else? And they literally tell me, oh, no, I don't, because I think it's like a judgment call to ask that. I'm like, what do you mean? This is not a human option. It's not judgment. Asking it's asking. not. But they think it's judging the fact that she's doing that to say, oh, it's not it's not a, the right choice. Like you should be doing something else. They, they so don't want to judge that they don't want don't even want better for us. Maybe That's what they don't me. want, you know, maybe maybe they just, uh, if they don't have a, 
uh, abilities or resources to help that woman if she will say, yeah, I want to exit, maybe they don't want how to no, help her. So I don't think that's don't that. Want to get in the situation. No, I see that they don't want to, for them, it carries a judgment to ask if she would like to quit and leave and not do that anymore. Because resources are there. They do exist. I mean, it's they could connect her with a bunch of community services. Like We're very lucky in Montreal. We have a lot of community agencies that can help you with anything from food to employment to finding uh, an apartment. And, and again, I think employment is not a priority. When you get out of prostitution, you should be allowed to have a, 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 a short-term disability in order to rest and, and just, Absolutely. you know. Absolutely. It's, yeah, work is by Some the last women priority. Some women work immediately. Some women no, for sure. The labor market. And uh, usually they need to sleep. They need to sleep a lot <laughs> and and reconnect with their sensations and. And uh, so basically, you 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 do have the resources. So proper training for social workers and the exit services could could solve the problem. A, a big a big deal of it. It's a lens. The problem is in people's lens. They do not want to view prostitution as not an optimal because they believe it's a judgment call because the pro-sex work lobby is very strong here. It has been telling it's an empowering choice. Some women enjoy the freedom of schedule it gives them, blah, blah, blah. But again, we're, we're talking about the one who go to these community agencies for help are usually the street one, the most damaged one, the most abused one. And yet you look at this woman and nothing in you wants you to ask, you know, would you like to do something else? Would you like, you know, other occupation or a feeling of safety? But they don't. All they do is give condom, pass STD test, listen to them, you know, because they get raped, they get beaten. So, yeah, they offer listening, but it's a short term lens. And that's her whether she wants to stop being raped is judgment. Okay. But they don't make the connection because they don't they don't think that clients are the problem. They only think that bad clients are the problem. So for me, it's a question of lens. You either have a short term lens where you help the person survive in the here and now, or you move to a longer term lens where you want to try to reconnect the person with a broader uh, social system, with with a different leisure activity like going to the pool or yoga or all these things that we, honestly we don't do when we're in the sex industry. We're very disconnected from our bodies. Uh, probably abolitionists like you are the hope. You will bring the change. Well, we're working right. hard, but I confront people. When I see community workers who do not ask women, I tell them when I was 17, I would have killed for having someone ask me or tell me, you know, you could do something else. You you have talent. You you're capable. I believe in you. But if no one tells you that, all they do is respect your choice to be a sex worker, not judge your choice. Make sure you're okay. You have condoms. Blah blah blah. So again, it's about what do we want as an optimal for women? You know, I want women to not be routinely penetrated for money. That's what I want. Thank you, Valerie. <laughs> it was very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Have we gone through you. all of your questions? Yes. Yay. So thank you both for this interview and for your activism. And uh, Thank you so much. Else. I think yeah. I answered everything kind of not in the order that, that you uh, yeah, were so asking, but I tried to give as much info as I could. 
Yeah, so it just I cancelled last questions because they were already answered in different way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you very much for everything. You are my amazing. pleasure. The people like you make this world so much better for us same, and for our children. Same. I read you every day as well, and thank you for your efforts. I think it's an international cause, and each of us in our respective country. And you know, the more we network through global organization like CAP International and things like that, that's how we're going to become one voice. And and you and I both, we are in pretty privileged country, but we realize that if we abolish here, prostitution is just going to move to third world country. It, must, it should start somewhere. It should start somewhere. It is yeah. just like many, many I, I hear that many people say that uh, once you abolish it in one country, prostitution just moves to another country. Like from France, it moves to, to Spain. Spain yeah. And from Sweden and Norway, it moved to Denmark. But but still, you should start somewhere and then um, it, will, it will expand uh, wider and wider and wider until uh, the entire world will uh, live uh, this modern slavery in the past. If you want, I think I would like to add something. Maybe they'll cut it into yeah, sure, they do their sure. montage. I think I would like to explain at the federal level the situation. So yeah, I, I would love we to have that, yeah. we have basically three parties who stand a chance to be elected. Unfortunately, the ones who drove and made it past the abolitionist law are the conservative. And I'm sure you know, most of the time, abolitionists, we have to create allyship and partnership with more conservative people because they're the only one who seem to be abolitionists. All the progressive are pro-sex work. So what does that leave us? I mean, it's difficult, but it's it's annoying, but that's how it is. So the conservative in Canada are the one pushing and uh, enforcing the abolitionist model. Sadly, and really, really sadly, the liberals, which is the current party of Justin Trudeau and the NDP, are not at all abolitionists. In fact, the young liberals, which is the young branch of the Liberal Party, is actually pushing for decriminalization of prostitution and surrogacy. So they want to destroy the Nordic model law. So I want to invite people to be very vigilant because this is what they're trying to do. And we need to counteract this and explain that this is not banal, make people understand the connection between surrogacy and prostitution, because surrogacy is reproductive exploitation. So in Canada, already it is illegal to sell blood, to sell sexual cells and sperm and so on, or organs. So why not go a step further, be coherent and understand that selling access to women's body fits within that same category of things that need to be untouchable by the market. So I, this is what I want to warn about. Is unfortunately, in Canada, the law is shaky. They are trying to evaluate it at the, the moment. They're doing an evaluation of how it, what it's done uh, so far. But the problem is because it was not really implemented throughout Canada evenly, and because we're not really arresting clients and having John school, like we're not yet telling men to stop buying women at a social level. I have not seen a campaign on TV that tells you that buying women is criminal, you should know that. Also, please understand that these are victims, blah, blah, blah. None of that is done. So it, it's it's almost like it's up to activists and community agency to carry this publicly because the government on its end is not doing much at the moment. So, I mean, we do have the correct law, but we need to make them, and I mean, 
all citizens need to understand that the government, we put them there. They are accountable to us. So people need to stop thinking like, oh, them and us. It's not us and them. We put them there. They have to listen to us. I, I'm really tired of how people are all submissive in front of elected official. They, We put them there. They are there to respond to our needs. What they're doing is they're instead they're responding to corporation and lobbyism. You know, the whole political system is a problem. But the abolitionist law we have is still on shaky ground. It, it could revert. And if it's not being enforced and if it doesn't trickle down to the municipal level where these sex businesses stop existing, then we're not going to be able to measure positive results because it's not being applied properly. So that's it. Yeah, I understand it now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I really hope that uh, the, all the provinces of Canada will uh, follow the positive Manitoba example and not... Uh, Let's hope. Opposite. <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah. so much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> I hope to Bye. see you next year in Montreal. Yes, I hope it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Take care. It. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.